0: You've probably noticed already in your bulletin that David Williams is back here with us today to preach, which I'm very grateful for on a number of fronts. Mostly that frees up my week not to have to prepare a sermon, so I'm thankful for that. Um, And I'm thankful for David's um, mind and the way he minds up the scriptures that are encouraging to me. I'm thankful for... His relationship with the Lord that encourages me. I'm thankful that he's been a part of Christ Community Church as a college student who we have now helped support to go out to seminary and he's still tracking along that line as in terms of what is his his next endeavor and we're glad to be supportive of that. But mostly David, I'm thankful for your friendship. That that means a lot more to me than all of those other things that we can just get together and talk about different issues in our life. And so I'm really grateful today that you get to hear David Williams, the Christian godly man, the man who understands the scriptures and can put it out there for you to to hear and to pick up. And I'm thankful that you're also going to hear from my friend, David Williams. So let's stand and read the scriptures together. Matthew chapter 25 You may be seated and let's take a few moments to reflect on God's Word.
1: Getting ready to head out the door to drive up here, my niece came in and she saw me putting on my shoes and she said, Uncle David, where are you going? I said, Well, I'm going to church. She says, Well, why are you going to church? And I said, Well, because I'm supposed to preach this morning. And she says, How can you preach? (laughs) And I said, I don't know. So, with that in mind, let's pray together. So, um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here today. We thank you that uh, you are with us now as we are confronted with your word, and particularly with your Son, who was made meek and lowly, who abandoned his glory to take on the form of a servant who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross, who identified himself with all the low and the weak and the disgraced things of the world, and yet who is the one who has been raised and exalted, and who is the one who will render judgment over this world. Lord, uh, by your spirit now we pray that you would open our hearts to receive the force of of your word. Lord, that you would open my mouth uh, to speak only that which you would have me to say. Lord, we ask all of these things in your holy and precious name. January 7th, 1610. Galileo Galilei looked up at the night sky for the first time using a newly invented instrument called the telescope. And he was examining in particular this one planet we know as Jupiter. And when he looked at Jupiter, he saw, when he used this telescope, something that he couldn't have seen with his naked eye. He saw that next to Jupiter, there were these three other lights, And that provoked his curiosity, because from the vantage point of just the naked eye, it just looks like one dot. But when you look closer, it's three. And he observed Jupiter for the next several nights, and he saw that these lights would move. And in fact, they moved in such a way as to only be explainable if they were, in fact, orbiting Jupiter. Now, this was huge, because for about a thousand years... It had been thought that everything in the universe revolved around the Earth. And if something is revolving around Jupiter, that raises the question, what else does not revolve around the Earth? And as as Galileo pressed this issue further, sooner he he realized, the only way I can explain everything that I'm seeing through this telescope is that the earth revolves, rather, around the sun, and lots of things don't revolve around the earth. And he was forced to rethink everything. Our passage this morning is somewhat like a telescope. This is what you would call an apocalypse. This is part of uh, Jesus' discourse on the Mount of Olives, which is sometimes called a mini-apocalypse. Apocalypses are a very weird genre, But the one thing that apocalypses do, or the main thing that apocalypses do, is that they allow you to see something that you could not see with just your naked eye. They open your eyes to realities that otherwise would fall beyond your field of vision. And the thing about Jesus' apocalypses is that they're a lot like Galileo's telescope. Because when you see the world through these lenses, you might be forced to rethink everything. So using this passage or looking through this passage, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the people of God. Then we're going to look at the judgment. And then we're going to look at Jesus. And we're going to see what this passage reveals to us that otherwise we could not see. First, let's look at the people of God. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Jesus is using here a common agrarian metaphor that would have been very familiar to the people of his time. Sheep and goats would graze together in the fields, but when it came to nighttime, the shepherds would have to shep- separate the sheep from the goats, because, you see, sheep being woolly, like the open air when it's nice and cool outside, but the goats, not being quite as woolly, have to huddle together to stay warm and in order to keep them separate so that they can be comfortable, the shepherd would separate them. So this was a common sort of thing in in Palestinian life in this day. But this is more than just an agrarian metaphor that Jesus is picking up. This is a potent metaphor that Israel had been using for some time to describe the relationship between God and Israel, between the Lord and his people. Psalm 23, 1 and 2. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me in, or he makes me to lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. What's more, this metaphor is used to encourage Israel. It's, it's tied to their hope for redemption and rescue. So in Psalm 28, 9, the psalmist cries out, Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Or look to Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, Israel began to use this language not just to describe the relationship between the Lord and themselves, but also to embody their hope that someday the Lord would send a king, a Messiah to act as His shepherd over His flock. So Micah 5, 2 through 5, which you've probably heard at Christmas time, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Jesus has used this metaphor before. In Matthew ten six, he sends out his twelve disciples to share the gospel, and he says, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Or earlier on in Matthew, or later on in Matthew, he says to a beleaguered Canaanite woman, I was sent only to the sheep of the house of Israel. And in the garden of Gethsemane, when he's been betrayed and he's about to be arrested, he identifies himself as the great messianic shepherd that the Lord had been planning to send. And he says, strike the sheep or strike the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. Now, as I said before, this is tapping into the hope of Israel. Israel had been crushed for centuries by foreign invaders, and they'd been longing for the Lord to rescue them, to redeem them, to set them free. And so when Jesus uses this sheep-goat language, he invokes Israel's hope for restoration and vindication, invoking their hope for the day when the Lord would judge between Israel and their oppressors. And that's an important thing to note, judging between Israel and their oppressors. In the Bible, judgment is always judgment between one party and another. One party turns out to be in the right, the other party turns out to be in the wrong. So, for instance, Micah 4.3, talking about the great coming judgment, he says, He shall judge between many people and, deci- and shall decide for strong nations afar off. Now, in the Judaism of Jesus' day, there was a great deal of disagreement about who would be on the side of the righteous? Who would be those who would be vindicated at the last day? Who would be declared to be the true flock of God? And who would be on the side of the unrighteous? Those who would be picked out as the cursed, as those who were beyond the pale. Some thought that the true flock of God were separatists. They looked like the people who remove themselves from anything that smacks of paganism, move off into the desert and live an ascetic lifestyle. These are the people called the Essenes. They are the people you might have heard of if you've read anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls or have watched the Discovery Channel. There are other groups. They were the insurrectionists, people who thought that the true flock of God are those who take up the sword and fight with everything they have to get the infidels out of their land. Or, there were the Pharisees, you know, the black hat bad guys from the Gospels, who thought that the true flock of God were the people who keep the law just thus and so, with a certain precision. So when Jesus steps up and he says this, the king will say to those on his right, what is he going to say? What is he about to say? Jesus is getting ready to give his answer to a question that was hotly debated in his time. Who is the true flock? Who is the flock that will be vindicated? And his answer doesn't fit anywhere on the map of what people were expecting. It's something that's just staggering. He says... the true Israel, the true people of God, the true flock of the Lord is mercy. Now, that would have been jarring to his hearers. Mercy? You mean not separating ourselves from, from anything, any of that icky paganism? You mean mercy? Not just keeping the law just right? You mean mercy? Not kicking out these people who are trampling our lands? Mercy. Now, this is striking. I mean, he's saying that if nothing else, the people of God are to be merciful. The people of God are to be a whole lot of other things, but mercy has got to be one of them. Mercy's not optional. Jesus is saying <laughs> mercy is not the icing on the Christian cake. It's not something that you can decide to go for or not to go for. Now, and this is striking not just to the people who heard him at first, but I think sometimes it can be striking for us as well. There is an impulse in the church in America to set mercy off on the side as though it were a secondary thing that, you know, great if you can get to it, if you can squeeze it in. Uh, a really striking example of this came to me the other week. I, I have a friend who came to me just distraught because he had gotten his church's budget statement. Now, the church that my friend attends could only adequately be described as a megachurch. This place is huge. And they have a $6 million budget. So you know I'm not talking about us. And, of course, they have everything. They have basketball ministries. They have baseball ministries. They have small group Bible studies galore of every flavor and everything that you could possibly want. They have a seminary. But, They spend more on their electric bill than on outreach. And not a single program, not a single penny, was devoted to care for the poor. I mean, that's... Wow. Now, that's an extreme example. And that's not how every church is. I had the privilege of going to a church up in Philadelphia where they really struggle every year to break even because they probably give more than is wise to missions and to ministry with the poor in the inner city. They give dangerously and sometimes it costs them pretty dearly. But we have to recognize that the temptation to turn inward, to be navel-gazing, to focus on ourselves, not just in what we think about, but also in where we place our energies and what we give ourselves to. You can really draw a pretty easy contrast between, say, the church today and, say, the church in the 19th century. In the 19th century, during the Great Revivals, the revivals were the impetus behind most of the great uh, philanthropic movements and reform movements in Great Britain and America. It was, the, it was the evangelical revivals that led to the abolition of slavery, that led to the reformation of the factories, that led to child labor laws, that established orphanages, that took care of the poor. Now, that seems to be something more in line with a sheep ish sort of church and oh, we should long to be that way how we should long to be a sheepish sort of church like our forebears in the 19th century like our forebears in the first century remember Acts the early church pools all their resources to see to it that nobody amongst them is without clothes or food or shelter or the Apostle Paul, who spends so many of his uh, waking ministry hours gathering famine relief for his brothers in Jerusalem. We should long to be that way. And not only should we long to be that way, we should recognize that it is imperative for us to be that way. This passage lays it upon us in the most forceful terms possible. James puts it really succinctly in James 2.13. He says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So this brings us to looking again and looking close at the judgment. Now there is no denying that in this passage the stakes are as high as they ever get. The stakes here are salvation and damnation. This is not a passage about greater and lesser rewards for people who are saved. This is a passage where the stakes are entering into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world or departing from Christ into eternal fire The stakes don't get any higher than that. And non-believers sometimes object to the very idea of the judgment, but Christians have an objection sometimes too. And that objection is not usually to the judgment per se, but to its terms. Now there is a really explosive word in this passage. And it shows up twice. You know that word is? four. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Four. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me four now that is a jarring jarring statement for us if if you're an evangelical if you're sort of within what we call the reformed tradition this this sins chills up and down your spine because you think wait what about salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone this sounds an awful lot like salvation By works. This sounds an awful lot like Jesus is saying, because you did X, Y, and Z, these philanthropic merciful deeds, because you did these things, therefore you enter the kingdom. And because you on the left did not, you do not enter. Now, I want to say that that is a very legitimate concern to have. But before addressing that, I want us to step back. Because I think there's a danger here. We need to beware that we are not pressing that very legitimate question for illegitimate reasons. You can do that, you know. Beware that you do not use the doctrine of justification or your question about how this passage fits with what we know from elsewhere in Scripture to be true, be sure that you don't use that question to defang what Jesus is trying to impress upon you in this passage. To remove the force of the moral imperative that he is enjoining upon you right now. So search your hearts. Now that said, we can look at the, the question. Now we cannot avoid the fact that the, the scripture repeatedly talks about the final judgment as hinging upon what we have done in our lives. So Romans t- 2, 6-8, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Or say uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. We could give other examples, for instance, Revelation 20.12, but there's really not any need to multiply them here. The fact is that what you do and don't do will matter at the judgment. The judgment is not a theological pop quiz. It's a giving of an account of what you have done with your life. Now the question is, how does that fit with faith? You know, John Calvin felt the force of this, you know, he says in his commentary on this passage, I could see how the Catholics would say the things that they do about this passage. And he felt the force of it, but then he argues differently. And that's what we're gonna do now. You see, I think that this sort of worry about how do we square a final judgment that is a giving of an account of our works, worrying about how that squares with justification by faith may hinge on a misconception about faith. Faith in the Bible is not just the passive acceptance of a religious system or a few theological opinions. Faith is active For instance, Romans, Paul at the beginning and the end of Romans, he talks about the whole point of the gospel being revealed to him and him being sent out to preach it is to bring about the obedience of faith in the nations. For Paul, obedience and faith are linked. These are not entirely separate categories. Or think of Hebrews 11. This is the passage I call the Old Testament All-Stars. It gives you a roster of the great men and women of the Old Testament, and it praises them for their faith. But it always couches its praise of their faith in terms of what they did. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land. By faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Faith always issues in action. James put it this way, James said, For as the body apart from spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If you don't have a faith that works, you don't have a faith that saves. And so, you could just as well say that at the final judgment in passages like Matthew 25 and like Romans 2, when you're giving an account of what you've done, it's also a giving an account of what sort of faith you've had. Has your faith been embodied? Or has it just been a passive set of opinions? Now, some of us might be getting kind of discouraged at this point. You might be thinking, well, gee, I don't know if I've got an active faith. I don't know if really at this judgment day, if it were to happen right now, uh, if I would be on the left side or the right side with the sheep or with the goats. Because when I think about it, I haven't really given all that much to the poor. Maybe I've dropped a few coins in a styrofoam cup that a homeless guy is holding out. I went to Habitat for Humanity once or twice, but that was really because my friends guilted me into it. Or any number of things that might be crossing your mind that might drive you to despair. But I want to say that that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is not to move you to despair or discouragement, it's to move you to action. Most of you have probably read or seen, uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Remember the story? Ebenezer Scrooge is a grouchy old man, says Christmas is a humbug. And he's visited by four ghosts, one of his former colleagues, and then the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. They show him different things. And the ghost of Christmas future shows him a pretty bleak picture of what life will be like if he continues the way he has been all his life. He sees, you know, him dying an early death, he sees Bob Cratchit, his employee in dire straits, and he sees that sweet, cute, kind, tiny Tim is deceased. And he despairs. But then he wakes up, and he realizes it's not the future yet. And he throws open the windows, and he points to the young man on the street, and he says, you there, what day is it? And he says, well, it's Christmas Day, sir. Now, and this passage is like this. It's not giving you an image of the future to discourage you. It's giving you a, an image of the future so that at the end of this sermon, you can wake up, either figuratively or some of you literally, and and rush out there, throw open the doors, and say, what day is this? And I'll say, it's Sunday. But more to the point... It's the day of salvation. You know, last weekend was Easter. That's the great thing about Christianity. Jesus is risen. And as long as he is risen, there is hope. He transforms us. He takes us in, and by his spirit, he conforms us to himself. So that you can Accurately describe every day from that day to the judgment day as this is the day of salvation. So don't despair, but seek Christ. Seek to be conformed to him. Seek to become like the lamb that was slain so that you too can be counted amongst the sheep. Now, this brings us to our last section, and with this we'll close. You can't look at the judgment for very long before you have to stop and look at the judge. I think if there was anybody I would want to be judged by, it's going to be Jesus. Jesus, here in this passage, he identifies himself with the poor. He identifies himself with the lowly, the despised, the meek to the extent that you did not do these things to these people the low the the poor the hungry the naked you did not do them to me now this idea had been around in judaism for some time proverbs 14:31 whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker but he who is generous to him or to the needy honors him or proverbs 19:17 whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and will repay, and he will repay him for his deed. A later rabbi picked up on this, and he said, God will say, my children, whenever you give sustenance to the poor, I impute it to you as though you gave sustenance to me. Now, does God eat and drink? No. But whenever you give food to the poor, God accounts it to you as if you gave food to him. Now, I've been long thought that God identifies himself with the poor, but I want to say that Jesus identifies himself with the poor in an even deeper sense. Jesus' identification with the poor is not some sort of as-if. It's not some sort of uh, thing where he's just equating what you do for the poor with what you do for him. No, Jesus actually became poor. He took poverty upon himself. We've seen it in our songs this morning. Who is this so weak and helpless child of lowly Hebrew maid, rudely in a stable sheltered, coldly in a manger laid? Who is this man of sorrows walking sadly life's hard way, homeless, weary, sighing, weeping over sin and Satan's sway. Or our responsive reading that we began with, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You don't get any more poor than Jesus did on the cross. Lord, when did we see you thirst? On the cross, Jesus cried out, I thirst. Lord, when did we ever see you naked? When the soldiers had crucified him, they split up his garment and divided it amongst themselves. He knows. He knows what it is to be low. He knows what it is to be meek. And it raises the question of why? Why? Why would he empty himself to that point? To the point where He has nothing left and he has to give up his own spirit. And you know, don't you? He did it for you. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. When you stand before Christ at the judgment, you stand at the bar of mercy. Mercy is his agenda, and he wants us desperately to be on board with it. And mercy is also what drives him. So that we dare not, dare not despair or give up. But that we must press on in faith in Christ. Lord Jesus, we are hungry, and we thank you that you gave us yourself as the living bread. Lord, we are thirsty, and we thank you that you are the living water that quenches the thirst of our souls. Lord, we are naked before you, and we thank you that you have clothed us in your righteousness. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us so that we would extend similar grace to those around us who are in dire straits. Lord, be with us now. Stir us to the action that your faith enjoins upon us. We ask all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.